Welcome to Caring for Caregivers, your life support podcast, where we explore what it really means to focus on your own mental health and well-being, along with the well-being of your workplace in the face of COVID-19 and other life challenges. I'm your host, Phil Rayner, and I've been working in the behavioral health care field as a social worker, serving in clinical, supervisory, and management roles for almost 40 years. I'm so happy to welcome Catherine Thomas to our podcast today. Catherine has served as Executive Director of the Institute for Health and Recovery since March of 2022, and for 25 years prior had worked closely with IHR founder and former Executive Director, Dr. Norma Finkelstein. Thomas has been working with high-risk families in a variety of capacities for her entire career as a child development specialist and coordinator of intervention services for families. She's developed and overseen a program focused on training for Spanish-speaking family child care providers, the Child Care Project, and a program designed to build parent-child relationships and families affected by substance use disorders, the Kinship Project. She also served as Director of Program Planning, Policy, and Training for a Massachusetts-wide program providing services to families of young children with disabilities and delays, Massachusetts Early Intervention. Ms. Thomas has participated in many policy development initiatives, including appointments to the Advisory Committee on Substance-Exposed Newborns of the Governor's Opioid Task Force, the Cambridge Human Services Commission, and the Governor's Statewide Commission on Children, Youth, and Families. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your, your time. I was wondering if you could talk with us a little bit. Many organizations, as I'm sure you know, are coming to recognize that they play a role in supporting the wellness of their employees, but are seeking ideas about how they can do so. I'm wondering, what have you identified as some helpful ways that they can go about supporting the health and well-being of their workforce? Well, um, good morning, Phil. Thank you so much for, for that kind introduction. I would say in terms of being an employer and supporting the health and wellness of our employees, um, particularly in the behavioral health field, it really goes back to some of the key issues that behavioral health direct care staff face. For example, burnout is very common, um, as you know, in the nonprofit sector and particularly in behavioral health. I think turnover is a really, really severe factor. And for people who either are coming into positions new and have had prior clinicians um, turnover unexpectedly or have had their supervisor positions turnover, I think those are really challenging issues. And so part of what we've done at IHR in response to that is for many, many years, we've had a real investment in uh, workforce recruitment and retention. So we work very, very hard to retain our staff and including, you know, when we can do it, which we really struggle to do, but it's of overwhelming importance. So, you know, I advise anybody who can do this to find any little bit of money that you can and do an annual bonus for staff if you can't actually do a cost of living increase, which is all, all, often very difficult in the nonprofit sector. A lot of staff recognition, really paying attention to the kind of agency that we are. We're 
half um, training and capacity building and half direct service. So we really try to connect those two aspects of programming so that our training and capacity building for the behavioral health workforce statewide, not necessarily for our employees, but so that reflects some of the best practices and things that we've learned um, in actually providing the direct service. And that way we can always maintain our position sort of on the cutting edge of interventions that are being delivered for, um, for families in particular, because we specialize in working with families. What do you find has been particularly effective when you, when you look at capacity building? I think that's a challenge as well for many organizations and, and a high priority. What are some of the findings that you've identified? Well, I think they're, you know, the same as as the ones that I talked about earlier, particularly mm -hmm. um, during the pandemic years, because our capacity building contracts are primarily with other human service agencies, particularly, particularly the behavioral health system in the state of Massachusetts. So programs that are licensed and or funded by the um, state's Bureau of Substance Addiction Services within the Department of Public Health. So within those programs, we're seeing a lot of the same things. We're seeing turnover. We're seeing challenges with salaries, challenges with, you know, lifting folks up, challenges with retaining folks a lot. We're also seeing the challenges of working with a peer workforce. So folks who are in recovery themselves, who are often the folks that come to this field, wanting to give back and wanting to bring their own knowledge and experience of recovery. Sure. And and at the same time, with those folks in particular, you need to be looking at kind of a different level of support for the peer recovery workforce in terms of making sure that they're able to understand and be supported in establishing boundaries uh, with the clients that they're working with, making sure that they're able to address stigma in ways that feel most effective for them and for their own well-being. So I think all of those have been challenges with the training and capacity building. And part of what we've, again, tried to do to address that, see, I can't answer a question without giving a partial solution. Sorry. That's, just That's actually idea. very helpful. <laughs> <laughs> Part of what we've um, really worked hard to do to address that is the way that we do our training and capacity building work is through a model of, it's similar to a client-based model where you'd work with a client. So initial kind of outreach and engagement to the program. So uh, often these programs come to us in crisis mode, like they've had, you know, a lot of staff turnover, or they've had a series of overdose deaths, or they've, they've you know, lost clients due to, you know, escalating violence within the program, or different kinds of things that have happened that I think are are, you know, just endemic to this field. And so we provide outreach initially and do a sort of like, a, you know, kind of a first responder approach, a psychological first aid approach to, to really kind of move in and, you know, uh, provide a listening ear, provide some support for the staff in an initial session. And then we begin to kind of build with the program staff and administration. So, you know, it's possible to not live in crisis all the time. And here are some ideas that we have for how 
you know, programs might be able to do this. And here are some of the things that we've done. And we'd be happy to work with your program over time. Um, and again, it's never a one-shot deal because you're often changing um, agency culture at the same time as you're answering some of these other questions. So it's it's really coming in and working with that program over time to, to kind of embed and integrate the values of trauma-informed care, the values of reflective practice, both for staff, for clients, and for supervisors so that everybody's learning how to reflect with each other so that we don't end up with these kind of crisis situations that are set off by, you know, sort of hair trigger tempers and people always being on the edge. So, um, so that's some of the challenges that we've seen in capacity building and some of the ways that we've been working to address that as well. I think what you're saying is so important in, in thinking of this almost in a clinical way, that there needs to be an assessment, there needs to be some kind of a plan that's developed and, and some process that an organization goes through to get to a place where the, the wellness of the organization and the culture of the organization is, is healthier. It's not a um, quick fix, um, just, you know, let's slap a new solution on what you're currently doing and everything will be just okay. Right. Right. And and one of the things that we've done in our organization is that we've really worked over the years and and we've been in existence for um, over 30 years now. And we've really worked to establish ourselves as a values based agency. So one of the things that we have that kind of that that's that's something that sort of all that all staff adhere to and are aware of is what we call our principles of relationship. And this is a set of principles um, that are based on the relational model of treatment, which is kind of where our treatment is grounded, as you can hear, you know, both for clients and for our capacity building clients for, for programs that we're working with. And the principles of relationship really talk about what we what we hold most important in terms of how we work with each other and how we respect each other. What are the things that we recognize as kind of basic principles and values and understandings? And how do we demonstrate those in our work? So that's also a model that we've shared with some of the programs in, in terms of like thinking about a sort of a, you know, a, a, a constitution or a, or a, um, a document that that people are able to, you know, sort of post on the walls and think about and point to when things happen so that um, we can talk about how we're adhering to those kinds of things on a daily basis. And particularly around um, parent-child relationships. So we work with a lot of family programs, family residential treatment programs, for example, that have um, pregnant women, women with small babies, and women who are, um, and men as well, who are reunifying with their children that may have been lost through the child welfare system or lost to kinship care while the person was active in their addiction. So one of the things that we speak to in those programs is very, very simple things like 
if you're if a if a mother and a child are going to be separated from each other in the program even for a few minutes get down to that child's level make sure you look that child in the eye and let them know what's going on so that you're building the expectation that we always communicate for those children so that they're not continuing to live in a in a kind of a culture of surprises or a culture of unexpectedness which may have been some of the things that happened to them prior. So I think that's a, sort of another example of how we try to link everything together. We really try to think about these values as as holding, you know, our staff, our clients, the programs that we work with, the parents and children that we work with. And it really is about, above all, you know, kind of integrating an awareness of how to be trauma-informed in real life. So a lot of people use the the catchphrase being trauma informed and you know have had training on trauma informed care and so on and you know the question is always well what how do you how do you actually manifest this like how does it show itself? You know relationships is how it shows itself, right? Behavior is how it shows itself. And so we really look to try to deepen those relationships and and change those behaviors and I will say, going back to the workforce issue, that I feel like for our staff, being able to, to provide treatment and support within a relational, trusting model with clients who often, often haven't had that in the past. And as you said at the beginning, we work with very high-risk clients. So we often work with families who've had a lot of tries at sobriety, who've worked very hard to, you know, to, to, to maintain um, sobriety and haven't been able to, uh, or haven't even been able to, you know, kind of open the door into treatment. And so um, when we do that, we really try to build the trust first to do the engagement first so that we can build the relationship and then go into the the more, um, you know, the more clinical pieces such as the, you know, intake assessment treatment plan and so on. How does that relationship building approach work in, in support of the, the workforce? Well, I think it works pretty much the same way. So um, I think that, you know, we have a very, um, a very active uh, leadership team here. One of the things, so going back to what I said at the beginning about retention, the majority of our program directors and supervisors have been here between five and 15 years. So we've managed to retain our supervisors over time. And um, part of that is that between myself as executive director and our assistant director, all of our programs roll up to us eventually so that we, between the two of us, we supervise all of the program directors directly and provide them with ongoing support and sort of insight into the workings of the agency. And one of the other things that we've worked really hard at is transparency. So we have um, monthly all staff meetings. Um, since the pandemic, we've only had um, two of them live. We have most of them on Zoom, but we um, we did a 
a quick Zoom survey of staff at one of our recent staff meetings, and staff are looking to have more live gatherings. So we'll be planning those for the coming year. And at our monthly meetings, they're always the first Friday. They're all staff. So sometimes we do trainings in particular topics that will be of interest to folks across the board. And as you might imagine, we have folks coming from a lot of different backgrounds because of our workforce. We, we're a small-ish agency. We're um, statewide in Massachusetts, and we have around 110 staff. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we're, we're not gigantic, but we're good size. And we do expect all of our staff to come to the, the monthly meetings. And we have various different topics. We also have an internal um, equity committee that focuses on the agency's equity plan moving forward. And that's actually been in place since um, 2007. So before it was kind of a buzzword, we've been talking about, you know, equity for staff across the board and how does that how does that incorporate all of the different sort of ways of being, ways that people are stigmatized or or victimized. And our equity committee at staff meetings uh, provides a report or activity. We also have, because we do a lot of training, we have some very skilled training staff. So often they provide sort of slightly more touchy-feely activities. As you can imagine, not everybody's crazy about those. But some of the things that we've done during um, COVID were we had an agency um, come in to work with us in um, uh, healing a healing through art agency um, called Violence Transformed, which is uh, led by one of our board members. And um, so she very kindly volunteered her time and her staff's time to do a healing activity through art with our staff, which was then something that we could carry forward and use as well for clients or for programs. So um, we've also had things like yoga classes, uh, you know, on Zoom yoga classes for people. We also have provided the opportunity often, for example, right after um, George Floyd's murder, you know, following on the, the the pandemic when we were really learning about kind of syndemic conditions, you know, in terms of sort of an epidemic of, of racism and an epidemic of, of COVID sort of coinciding. We did an activity where we just really had an open forum and we had people come into small groups via Zoom. One of the leadership, a member of the leadership team or equity committee facilitated each small group so that people were able to kind of just essentially say what was on their minds about what was going on and you know sort of no judgment no no questions no this is the, if you don't want this to go any further it doesn't need to go any further but that's kind of how we how we held that so just some examples of of how we use that in workforce yeah Catherine I'm struck by how clear your organization is about the values that really are important to the organization and the very concrete and real activities that you initiate to to align with those values it's you know it's the values are stated and they're made clear but then there's action in the organization that backs up and aligns with those and i i I know that 
I've worked in and I've talked with many people who've worked in organizations that may have a pretty glamorous list of values and priorities and beliefs, but the day-to-day operations don't necessarily align with that. You know, I know that when you look at what people in healthcare are looking for in an employer, it's an organization that aligns with their values and really practices what they preach. And so I'm, I'm just very impressed with what you're describing and the range of specific ways that you carry it out. Yeah, that's something that I learned from my my mentor and um, our founder and executive director, who was really, you know, an amazing, amazing leader of this organization for many, many years. And and this was, you know, put into place under her leadership. And as you said, I have worked with her for the past um, 25 years. So have as assistant director, so also have been able to vary uh, before stepping into the executive director role, I've been able to vary concretely you know, work with the staff across the board to really incorporate those because we don't want them to just be on paper. It's it's similar to what I said about training in trauma-informed care. We don't want people to just be going out and say, oh, I know all about trauma-informed care. I've been trained in that. We want people to be able to say what it is. Like, how, how, do, they, how do they see trauma-informed care, you know, reflective practice, relational practice? How do they see those values playing out in their programs. And um, in our in our um, principles of relationship, we talk about it as um, our final principle. It, we, we say we're committed to incorporating each principle into our daily interaction with each other. And then, as I said, each principle has a accompanying demonstration of value. And uh, so we say we demonstrate this commitment by walking the talk. So we don't just talk the talk, we walk the talk. <laughs> I, yeah, and I love the way you, you align with the mutual support and recovery concepts and language that, you know, you gotta, you've got to walk the walk. It's, uh, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Catherine, you had mentioned earlier that there were a number of ways in which you've been able to support the financial needs of your workforce um, through salary and through bonuses. And you mentioned there were also other ways in which um, you've been able to provide recognition in a to support their well-being. Um, Can you talk a little bit about some of those other ways of uh, recognizing your employees? Sure. One of them is through professional training. So we allocate um, uh, dollars to the extent possible in our budget for professional training opportunities for staff. Um, It's not usually a lot of money. Um, This year it's $200 per staff person, but that allows um, any staff person within the agency to use that funding for, um, we're very flexible about what it can be used for. It can be used to purchase books that people are interested in in. Um, We've used it to help folks with getting um, coaching, for example, to prepare for the uh, um, licensed social work exam. We've used it for folks to attend professional trainings to pursue their own specific interests. Um, So that's one way through um, professional training dollars. Another way is through building of teams. So I mentioned our kind of supervisory structure and, you know, sort of our, the way that our hierarchy rolls up to um, myself and the assistant director. But within our teams, we have a sort of a larger clinical team, which is essentially half of the agency staff. And then within that, we have 
specific teams for each different clinical program. And so within those teams, people also provide informal training. They provide events for staff to, you know, ways for staff to get together, sometimes outside of work, you know, staff will get together for, you know, dinner or informal lunches or, or something like that. Just opportunities for staff to get to know each other better. Other things that we do, we, we're, a, as I said, we're 110 staff, but we, we function a little bit like a smaller agency sometimes. So whenever anybody on staff has a baby, gets their social work, ex, uh, you know, credential, attains their LMHC credential, you know, has a major professional step, our HR department is, you know, just on it in a minute. And they send out agency-wide emails saying, you know, please congratulate so-and-so for their amazing accomplishments. So it is something that even if you don't, you know, know those people personally, because you're in a different office and you only see them at monthly staff meetings, you see emails flying by because everybody always insists on replying all. So you see emails flying by with all the confetti emoji and the smiley emoji and, you know, all the happy faces um, congratulating people, which is just a real feel good thing to do. And then I think the other thing that we do that is that is also financial, but not as directly financial is that we have a very generous um, vacation and benefit allocation. So it's one of the things that's allowed us to remain a little bit competitive in this field where we can't always pay, well, we can never pay the salaries that like hospital and private, you know, healthcare are paying. But um, we do have a, um, a healthcare plan and we contract with a Massachusetts organization called the Providers Council that that has does um, brokerage work and they find us great deals on our health care. So we're actually able to afford our employees really only pay. They pay very, very little to nothing for an individual or a individual and one other plan. And they pay a very small amount for a family plan. So, you know, way wow. less than a lot of organizations Um uh, ask for. And we've made that commitment because healthcare has so increasingly become so unreachable and expensive and crazy, if you don't mind my saying so, for working people, especially people in the nonprofit sector. And we just feel as though we absolutely need to need to address that. So, so that's the healthcare piece. And then in vacation, we provide people with, so when people first start with us, they earn um, 10 hours of vacation time a week. So they, they end up earning um, three weeks of vacation time at, after the, you know, within the first year, after two years, they earn, they can earn as full-time employees, 17 days, three to five years, they earn 20. And then after you've been here as long as I have, um, um, you um, you have 25 vacation days a year. So post-COVID, I have to say that backfired on us a little bit because people couldn't really use their vacation time. And we ended up with a huge agency liability of unused vacation time. So we tried to get creative and we instituted a vacation buyback program. So we this year, we're now allowing employees who've, it's a, we've tried to do it as a win-win 
so that an employee who has a high balance of vacation time, they need to use at least half of their vacation hours before they can even apply to have the agency buy back a week of hours. And that's to encourage them to actually use their time. I'll say that again. We want to encourage them to actually use their vacation time. And um, and it once they've done that and they're eligible, um, if they've been with the agency th at least three years, th they can apply and, of course, will grant it. They can have the agency buy back um, up to a week per fiscal year, up, so up to 40 hours of vacation time. So it's like getting an extra week's paycheck without having to worry about traveling if you're nervous about doing that post-COVID or during COVID. So that's another thing that we've put in place. You know, Catherine, I'm, I'm just, I'm very impressed. When, when I started in the field, which was many years ago, um, one of the attractive features of working in a not-for-profit organization was that the benefits tended to be richer. You know, the health benefits were better and you got more vacation time, but many organizations really cut that back over time as a way to help you know meet their their budgets and their their own bottom lines how have you been able to sustain that richer benefit package even in these more challenging times i know you mentioned there was the one organization you were able to to use i guess as a broker to help mm -hmm. get uh, better benefits for insurance yep the massachusetts yeah. providers council which works with so we're a member they work with all with um you know nonprofit providers in massachusetts and so you have a you know obviously when you're a group you have a little more a little more strength or a little more oomph um so that's one way that we've managed um well i won't say we've managed to keep health insurance or dental insurance costs low but you know I'll say a couple of things. One is it's just a very high priority for us. And the other thing is that a lot of our funding comes from state contracts and federal grants. And so where we have flexibility, where we have a reimbursement model that doesn't only reimburse us for an hour of service, but that is more of a cost reimbursement model, then we use that flexibility towards things like benefits and vacation time. So we're very thoughtful about how we think about budgeting. And I also also will say that we do, and particularly during and post-COVID, we're advocates with our state agency funders and our federal agency funders about the importance of recruiting and retaining a strong workforce. So, you know, bottom line in nonprofit, we all know this, you don't have a program if you don't have a workforce. And if you don't have a good, talented, strong, diverse workforce, you in, in at least in our case, you're not going to have the programs that you want and the programs that you aspire to build for people. So it all comes back to the staff. And you need to be able to sometimes um, squeeze things a little bit. We were also very fortunate in Massachusetts, I'll say, because over the past couple of years, um, both the Department of Children and Families and the Department of Public Health, two of our major funders, have provided COVID relief money um, for direct service workforce. So that's part of what we took. When that money came in, I was like, that is turning right around and going into bonuses. If we, if we can do a COLA, you know, later on, in the fiscal year, if we can identify unspent funds, we will. But um, that money is going into bonuses, and that's a very appropriate use of the money to everybody's mind. So I, you know, I think kind of a 
combination of it being a priority for our agency because we do believe in in you know strong staffing and and retention um it also being a priority i think of the funding agencies and you know kudos to the to the uh, government funding agencies that have been able to provide, you know, COVID relief measures around workforce recruitment and retention, because that's been, you know, sorely missing um, in the past. And, that, you know, we've had it over the past couple of years. I don't know what the future will bring. And, um, and finally, I will admit that I occasionally lose sleep over these things. So you're asking me, how have I identified funds? The true answer is sometimes on a wing and a prayer, but I do um, work very, very closely with our director of finance. I monitor our budget and our revenues on uh, a daily, if not more than once a day basis. Um, I, 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 I'm sure that every organization leader is very I'm familiar sure with that wing and that prayer. That, right? <laughs> we were also yeah. very fortunate to be one of the um, first organizations to get the um, PPP loan here in Massachusetts, because as soon as it was on the news, before anybody even knew how it was going to work, you know, as I said, we've been in operation for about 30 years and we, we've started as a pretty small organization. So we have a local bank and we've been with that local bank forever. And as soon as we heard about the PPP loan, the payroll protection program, um, the Federal Payroll Protection Program on the news, we reached out to our um, our bank branch manager and said, um, you know, we'd like to apply for this. Can you tell us how? And he's like, I have no idea how yet. They haven't told us a thing, but yes. And um, so we were very fortunate in that because that allowed us not to have to lay off anybody as a result of COVID. So that was great. That was really well, It sounds like keep, keeping an eye out for any funding opportunity and being able to move quickly when, when you recognize that something may be available, not, not wait and see. Right, um, right. And like a, like a lot of nonprofit EDs, I mean, we're scramblers, right? We, we you know, we, we are, we're advocates, we're community organizers, you know, this is where we come from, right? So we keep an eye on those opportunities. We look at anything, we talk to people, we hear about things, we follow things up, you know, we do look at those kinds of things. And we, you know, keep our fingers crossed, and we thank our staff. Yeah. So, Catherine, if if there were a, a particular message that you wanted to leave listeners with in regard to um, what they can do to support the well-being of their their workforce and organizations, what would you what would you prioritize as a recommendation? Would I prioritize among all of the things that I've been talking about? Um, I honestly think that the for staff, particularly staff who've been here a long time, and obviously I'm one of them, um, the for, for staff, probably the most important thing that's been identified over time in, you know, our employee surveys and conversations is the, the issue of, you know, kind of principles and, and values and, um, you know, essentially putting your money where your mouth is. So I do think that there are a lot of organizations that, you know, that can, that can talk about their, their principles and their commitments. And I think that's great that they've identified those. 
I, I think that taking it to the next step is often much, much harder because particularly if you're in a leadership position, it's all about letting go of control. It's kind of like um, before we started the the recording, I was talking about public transportation in the Boston area and um, how when you get on a train around here, you're basically uh, saying the serenity prayer, like giving it up, you know, like, okay, I'm in, I'm in the hands of the, of the, uh, the Massachusetts Bay Transporta transportation service. And that's, that's it. Um, but I've also learned that as an executive director, you don't, you, giving up control is in some ways more important or knowing the ways in which you need to give up control is sometimes more important than the ways in which you have control or at least as important. And, and I think that's a message that needs to resonate with our leadership across nonprofit is that and again, it's that relational model. It's that having trust in your staff and in your organization. Like, I've worked so hard to build what's here. Now can I, like, take my hands off it and say, okay, it's, you know, I've done all the right things. I've put everything in place. Let the chips fall where they may. And Often that's the hardest thing for us to do, sure. um, but I think it's one of the most important. Catherine, if, if people wanted to learn a little bit more about the things that you've been able to do in your organization and some of the services that you provide, is there a way in which they could contact you to learn more? Sure, absolutely. Our um, our website is I can you know uh, send you follow up information or whatever. But our website is uh, www.healthrecovery. So it's h e a l t h r e c o v e r y no punctuation dot org. So healthrecovery.org. That's the Institute for Health and Recovery. And you can learn um, more about our uh, direct services, our behavioral health treatment, our case management and other direct service that we do in counseling, our training and capacity building services and program development, which is a lot of what we do in concert with the state. Um, you can also contact me or any of the IHR staff um, via the website. You can um, find my information there. You can find information about the services. And every single, if you look under project index, you, there's an index of every single program that we provide and what it does in terms of family-centered services. So that's the place to go. That's great. Catherine, thank you so much. I really appreciate all the wonderful information that you've shared with us today. I think this has been tremendously helpful. Well, thank you. Thanks for asking me to um, to be a guest on the podcast. And I hope if if others can take anything away from this, um, I I hope they do. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Help is here. If you or someone you know is struggling with mental health or substance use concerns, contact one eight three three two find help. This podcast is produced by Advocates for Human Potential and supported wholly or in part through an emergency COVID-19 grant to the Illinois Department of Human Services Division of Substance Use Prevention and Recovery from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration.
The sentiments expressed in this podcast are not endorsed by any of these involved entities.